welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then provides expert summaries no bigger than the spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. Let's take a quick look at everything that we're going to cover today. First off, getting your intubations on the first try. Then, yet another sepsis cocktail trial. After that, steroids for COVID-19, then PE risk assessment with a stroke volume index, and finally, POCUS to help with your arterial lines. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the Radiant, Max Hensel, and Clay Smith. Now the first article titled, Impact of Targeted Bundle of Audit with Tailored Education and an Intubation Checklist to Improve Airway Management in the Emergency Department an integrated time series analysis out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And while that's a useful motto in many scenarios, it's not ideal with regards to intubation, where we know that first try success is important for safety. So anything that we can do to make that first try the best try, we really ought to be doing it. This was a prospective study of 573 patients with intubation attempts in the emergency department at a single center for six months before and then 18 months after a bundle of airway intervention changes were implemented at that site. This bundle included a monthly airway audit, targeted monthly airway education, and putting into place an airway checklist. With these changes, the first pass success rose by about 6%, from 89% to 95%. Use of tools that we know help with intubation, like a CMAC and a bougie, were higher after the intervention, so this could help explain some of the improvement, but I think the other parts also had a role to play. We know that checklists have been shown to be beneficial, at least when used properly and designed appropriately in many places. Most famously, of course, is aviation, but there's also been good outcomes for surgical uses as well. So perhaps we have another example of that. If you'd like to see their checklist while well, it's up on the blog, or you can dig through the supplemental figures of the paper. So, in a spoonful, regular airway education and a periprocedural checklist were associated with an improved first-pass success rate for endotracheal intubations. The second article, Effect of Ascorbic Acid, Corticosteroids, and Thymine on Organ Injury and Septic Shock, the ACTS Randomized Clinical Trial out of JAMA. It kind of feels like we at the Journal Feed are pretty committed to covering all of these trials that come out. Well, they keep coming out, so why not? You need to be updated on the literature either way. Though I think there might probably be a better use of resources for some other clinical questions, but hey, we'll keep working on it. Anyhow, here we have another ascorbic acid, corticosteroids, and thymine cocktail for the treatment of septic shock. So this will join the ranks of all the other fun trials that have come before it, such as Citrus Ali, HYV, CTTSSS, vitamins, vitamins for kids, and oranges. This trial was a multicenter RCT of 205 patients with septic shock who received IV ascorbic acid at 1,500 milligrams, hydrocortisone at 50 milligrams, and thiamine at 100 milligrams every six hours for four days, or they got placebo in matching volumes at the same time points. Their primary outcome was an improvement in the SOFA score over the first 72 hours. And they did find an improvement of 4.7 points in the treatment group but they also found an improvement of 4.1 points in the placebo group for an adjusted difference of only 0.8 points. There was no difference in the rates of kidney failure or 30-day mortality. And in fact, the 30-day mortality was actually numerically a little bit higher in the treatment group. 
The treatment group also had more adverse events, more hyperglycemia, more hypernatremia, and also more new hospital-acquired infections. So none of this is looking particularly hot. Now, there's also worth mentioning is the patient selection, which is interesting, I guess to say the least. There were nearly 4,600 people who were assessed for entry into the trial, and nearly 4,400 of them were excluded. Many of these exclusions were on the grounds that steroids had already been started or were going to be started. So this really makes it look like the study population is actually kind of quite hand-picked. And honestly, this probably blunted the effect if there was going to be one at all. Either way, though, there was no benefit shown here, and there was no benefit shown in all of the other trials. So maybe this one will be the last? In a spoonful, there is no benefit of ascorbic acid, corticosteroids, or thiamine on improving 72-hour SOFA scores in adult septic patients. The third article, Association Between Administration of Systemic Corticosteroids and Mortality Among Critically Ill Patients with COVID-19, a meta-analysis out of the JAMA. The world might feel like it's slowly sinking after hitting the iceberg that we all call COVID-19. But not to worry, the medical community is searching far and wide for a door that we can all float on together if this ship really does go down. Likely the most promising finding so far is the outcome of the recovery trial, which showed a benefit to dexamethasone in the sicker patients with COVID-19. But the authors of that trial were not the only ones looking at that clinical question. No, 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 no. There was, in fact, 55 corticosteroid trials of COVID-19 that were registered on clinicaltrials.gov. Now, most of those were suspended when the recovery trial data was released, but what about their conclusions? This was a rapidly produced meta-analysis of seven RCTs totaling 1,700 patients with critical illness due to COVID-19. Six of those studies were considered to be low-risk bias, and then when they were combined, they saw that there was a beneficial effect on the primary outcome of 28-day mortality compared with a placebo, for an odds ratio of 0.66 with no increase in adverse events. Hold on, I'm going to say that again, an odds ratio of 0.66. That's pretty great. Unfortunately, the subgroups are not big enough to pick out a difference between the different types of steroids that were used. Dexamethasone doses ranged from 6 to 20 milligrams, hydrocortisone was at 200 milligrams total daily dosing in three studies, and methylpred was 40 milligrams BID. But since the recovery trial actually made up 57% of the total cohort, I'd say that dexamethasone at a lower dose is probably a pretty safe bet. In a spoonful, a meta-analysis shows improvement in 28-day mortality in critically ill patients with COVID-19 when steroids are given. The fourth article, Echocardiography-Derived Stroke Volume Index is associated with adverse in-hospital outcomes in intermediate-risk acute pulmonary embolism, a retrospective cohort study out of the journal CHEST. Patients with high-risk PEs aren't doing well, I mean pretty much by definition, and so they're at higher risk of adverse events. But the hardest group to deal with as is always the case, the sort of middle child of all risk stratification is the intermediate risk patients. So coming up with another measure to help us characterize these patients would be, well, I mean, it'd be nice. Now, if we take a look at PE physiology, we can find places to look to better classify these patients. As PE severity worsens, we know that the right ventricle starts to bow out towards the left ventricle and sort of intrudes on its space and causes the left heart stroke volume to drop which can be measured since this phenomenon is visible by ultrasound. So how about we use that? This was a multicenter retrospective cohort study of adult patients with intermediate risk PEs by the SPESI score. Measurement of the stroke volume index was done using a pulse wave Doppler of the left ventricle outflow track. 
and the primary outcome included cardiopulmonary decompensation. This decompensation for this study was classified as a systolic blood pressure less than 90 for 15 minutes, having to give catecholamines for hypotension, intubation, or CPR. A total of 665 intermediate risk patients were included, with about 4% actually suffering the primary outcome. Using the cutoff of a stroke volume at 20 milliliters per meter squared, there was a sensitivity of 83%, a specificity of 87%, a positive likelihood ratio of 6.5, and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.2. So if we take those numbers, we can walk through a quick clinical scenario that our author Max made up for us to make it easier to sort of appreciate what these things actually mean. So we already know that from the PATHO study, that the pretest probability of early decompensation in intermediate risk patients is 5.6%. That means that if their stroke volume index was below 20, then their post-test probability for decompensation would rise to almost 28%. And then if their stroke volume index were above 20, then the risk would be just 1.2%. Now that is definitely a big enough difference to change management, and that could certainly mean the difference between admitting to an ICU versus admitting to a regular hospital bed. Now, like all studies, of course, there are limitations. Only a small number of patients actually met the primary outcome requirements, and this was still just a retrospective study. On top of that, this is a pretty advanced echocardiography technique, and it would likely be sort of out of the skill range of many probe-wielding ED physicians. All in all, though, it's definitely worth keeping in mind. In a spoonful, a low stroke volume index in intermediate-risk pulmonary embolism patients was associated with an increased risk of in-hospital mortality and morbidity, though it required advanced echo skills to get a reading on. The fifth and final article, Ultrasound Guidance versus Landmark Guided Palpation for Radial Arterial Line Placement by Novice Emergency Medicine Interns, a randomized controlled trial out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Something very useful and kind of finicky that often gets done in the emergency department is inserting an arterial line. So of course the patients that you're going to want it in the most, probably our hypotensive patients, are the ones where it's going to be hardest to palpate a pulse, and that's your landmark for putting it in. So where do we look when we're trying to do something more quickly, more accurately, or with less complications? Of course, it's Pocus to the Rescue. This was a single-center prospective RCT comparing ultrasound guidance against landmark-guided radial arterial line placement. First-year emergency medicine residents with less than 15 total attempts at arterial lines were randomized. The primary outcome was overall success, and the secondary outcomes were first-pass success, attempt number, time to completion, and complications. Using the ultrasound-guided method, overall success rate was 100%, with a 75% first-pass success rate. By the landmark method, rates were a lot lower, like quite a bit lower. The overall success rate was 15%, and then there was a 0% first pass success rate. Time to cannulation and number of attempts were about half in the ultrasound group. For the 17 failed attempts using the landmark method, all crossed over to the ultrasound method and then were successful. The only complication that was seen in this trial was one isolated hematoma in the landmark group and no others. Now, this was only a small study of only 40 patients from a single level one center, and so it may not represent the general ER community. Also of note is that they definitely only focused on novice interns who had already received ultrasound teaching on the topic, and come on guys, how much can you fault them? Plus, on top of it, when you're giving someone an option, like a fallback on that they're more comfortable with, 
It's not surprising when someone fails and then quickly switches to something that they might like better. Anyways, try not to judge them too harshly. All the same, the results were pretty clear. In a spoonful in novice interns, ultrasound guidance improved radial arterial line placement with a higher first pass success rate, fewer total attempts, and less time to cannulation compared with a landmark-based method. All right, guys, let's wrap up everything that we covered today. First, third time's a charm, but charming doesn't save lives. Make your first pass the best pass with regular intubation education and a periprocedural checklist. Next, guess what didn't work again? Septic shock cocktails. Tune in next time for the same. After that, more support for steroids in COVID-19, showing large improvements in 28-day mortality. Then, if you have the skills, then a stroke volume index in intermediate PE patients could be management-changing. And lastly, novice ER interns attempting radial arterial line placement did a lot better, and I mean a lot better with ultrasound guidance compared to a landmark-based approach. Now that you've already earned it, if you would like them, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. You can just head over there and check out our deals. Links to all the articles summarized can, of course, also be found at our website at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care by spoon feeding you. And so we're helping you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.